Hear the word of the Lord. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before the they laid down the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men of the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man, let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of, this, of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because of the outcry against its people has, come, has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place. For the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out, of the, out and set him outside the city. As they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. You have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the d- disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to and is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to him, Behold, I I grant you this favor also, that I will not overflow overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zor. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor, and the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. 
The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. God, in your great mercy and your grace, we ask that you would be with us this morning as we remember both your first coming and we long for your second coming. We remember our deep and profound need for you to be with us, to rescue us, your people. Bless us as we meditate on your words this morning. In the name of Christ, amen. Uh, as was mentioned, you know, this morning does mark the first Sunday for us in Advent. And you know, for us, Advent isn't just Christmas 25 days. It's not just pre-Christmas. Um, for a month and then it's done. But traditionally, you know, Advent is like a, meant to be like an appetizer for, the, for Christmas when we celebrate Christ's first coming. It, Advent, the word itself, means coming. And it's this word that is filled with, with longing because we're waiting for him to come. Uh, what are we longing for? We're, we're longing for our unmet expectations to be fulfilled, for, for the light of Christ to, to come in, into the world and cast away all the shadows of darkness for every wrong in this world and all the, the effects of, of the fall to be undone. Advent is this season of the church calendar, which is actually, you know, the, the beginning of a, of a new year. So, so for us, today is the first day of the, of the new year in this great season where we stare down the, the great works of the devil. We stare straight into the face of evil in this season. And we do not flinch, but we ask God to come and make things new, to right every wrong. And it isn't a season of sentimentality. Uh, Hallmark movies don't do it justice. Uh, and they can't because it's a season of, of war against the powers of darkness. You know, Advent is, is not just right, looking back at when Jesus came as an infant, but it's actually for us, more about us learning to long and look forward to his second coming. As we look back to his first coming, that is our, our, our hallmark, our stable say, as he came once, he will indeed come again. And when he comes, he will destroy the powers of darkness. And, uh, and as we explore this season of Advent, um, we're going to spend the next few weeks kind of finishing up some of our, our time as we've been going through Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis for this week and next week, looking at two kind of crazy stories. And then the, we'll spend our next two weeks of Advent uh, in, the, in the Gospels. But few stories in the scripture tell us and show us and remind us of the great need that we have for Jesus to come than the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and the story that follows with Lot and his daughters. And uh, this is one of the things I love about Advent because Advent is actually kind of a, a broody season. It's fitting that it's raining uh, today. And this is one of the things I, I love about scripture and this season is that it's not sentimental. This season does not gloss over the ugliness of life, and uh, because if it, if it did gloss over the ugliness of life, it wouldn't do us any good. And even just last night, we were watching a movie as a family, and it was a true story, and it kind of has a sad ending, and one of the kids said, man, I wish this was make-believe so it could have a happy ending, and, uh, which I, I can understand that, but uh, although um, our story here does eventually have a, the best of endings, Lying to you about our present day problems and glossing over them doesn't make anything better. Uh, it doesn't do us any good. We have to have the courage to stare into our momentary sadness 
And we can because we believe that this is not our end. The truth is there is grave evil in this world. There is great works of the enemy happening in this world and the effects of, of sin and just the, the, the decay that we experience in life. And, uh, and ignoring it does not fix it. And God's word is, can't be good if it ignores it either. So as we look at this story, this at times uncomfortable story of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and just the, the force of God's wrath being poured out on this place of wickedness, I think we're going to see a small portion of what the end of the story might be like. When evil is vanquished, when there is no more uh, evil left and it's all destroyed and righteousness will prevail, and in the middle of that is judgment and wrath. And, you know, maybe the idea of God being a wrathful God, pouring out his judgment uh, on Sodom, maybe that's uncomfortable for you to, to consider. Uh, the fact that God could be a loving God and a wrathful God. And, and usually, if this is a problem, it's usually for one of two reasons. For one, uh, either you can't imagine a loving God being wrathful. Like those two things seem like opposing sides to you. Or the idea of his judgment pouring out like this makes us fearful that one day he might point his, his judgment and his wrath to me. What happens then? And, and, uh, and I think in this story, I think we're going to explore some of those themes, some of those questions as we consider the wrath of God. And as we explore this, I'm going to break this up into kind of two sections, two points. Um, and they're these, the, the, the need for God's wrath, um, that not only is, is God's wrath necessary, but it's actually good, it's loving. And second, we're, we're going to talk about our, our need for a Savior, that we actually are people that need to be saved from his wrath. So first... Let's look at the need for God's wrath. Why do we need God's wrath? I think what we're going to see is because of the pervasive wickedness of man, we need God to come with his wrath. And I think we're going to discover that this is necessary and good. First, it's, it's necessary uh, because it ends the reign of, of wickedness. Let's look at this, this story again. You know, uh, it begins with these, these two angels that have been with Abraham. Now they've come into the city. They're coming to investigate. If you remember, the cries of the city have come before God. God is going to find out if these are true. So he sends these two people in to investigate. And you remember in Jewish law, you, you needed two or three witnesses. to, And so they're, they're fulfilling this. this. They're, they're coming to, to see two of them. Uh, is the outcry against the city true or not? And uh, it says Lot meets them uh, at the gate of the city. You know, one thing to know is this is not a, this is not a large city. It's probably the size like, a down, like Yakima's downtown. It's a you know, couple thousand people at most. Um, so it's not very big, but Lot is in the gate uh, welcoming them into the city. One of the things that this tells us about Lot, this will come up later, is that uh, Lot likely has some sort of standing in the city. To, to sit at the gate and watch the people that are coming and going signifies a, a degree of status for him in the city. Um, so he's some sort of leader within, this, within Sodom. And uh, the angels, they want to go in. They want to investigate. They want to sleep in the, the, the town square. And Lot's like, hey, guys, not a good idea. It'd be like if someone wanted to sleep in our town square, you'd be like, probably don't do that. There's better places. And so he convinces them, hey, come sleep in my house. Um, we'll have a good time. Make your food. I'll wash your feet. It'll be good. And so they do. And then the story begins to pick up and, and uh, get a little spicy here in verse 4. It says this, but before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, uh, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. Um, one thing to note is just the expanse of this language, right? He, he kind of goes from the, the, the men of the city, 
the men of Sodom, young and old, all the people to the last man. It's expansive. This is not just a few bad apples in this city. It's not just a handful of people. It's, it's all the men of the entire city are, are gathering around, young and old. Um, likely maybe elementary size, elementary aged boys, all there, gathering around the house. What are they doing? Well, verse 5 through 8 tell us. It says, uh, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And Lot went out to the men of the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. This is profound wickedness that we're seeing them want to do. First, right, they asked to know the two men, which in biblical language, this doesn't say, hey, Hey, what's your favorite food? That's not the kind of knowing that they want to do. And biblically, to know someone is to know them in a sexual way. Uh, and this is wicked for several reasons. For one, sex is this beautiful gift from God. It's meant to be shared between a husband and, and, and a wife, a man and a woman. And it is uniquely the place where actually new image bearers are created. Uh, it's this profound, beautiful gift that the Lord gives to, to, to humanity. Uh, and it's uniquely how the promises of God are even fulfilled in this world, to be fruitful, multiply, and through the seed of the woman, the, the savior of the world will one day come. And so, uh, and so they, they wanna basically take that great gift uh, that God has given to humanity and abuse these men with it. So it's, it's gross, abuse. Not only that, it's, it's unnatural because it's men laying with other men which goes against God's good design for human sexuality. It's a deep perversion. It's a denial of the God who created them. It's, it, it's saying, no, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm gonna do whatever I wanna do. It's an open rejection of the gospel. And this, this is the kind of wickedness that is reigning, that is ruling in this city. It's pervasive. It's, it's leading the people. And remember, this is everybody. You know, I think sometimes... Uh, we look at the sins of any particular generation, our generation, um, and we can think ourselves to be novel in our invention of sin, like we're the first people to invent this kind of wicked behavior. Um, but, you know, sexual perversion has, has been around since the fall of humanity. People desiring to lay with whomever they want, um, fulfilling all their desires. And let me just say this, that this, you know, the, the act of homosexuality, of men laying with men, women laying with women, clearly in scripture, this is, a, this is a, a vile betrayal, a vile sin of God's good order. And here, it, it actually becomes a sign, a culture that's given themselves over to it, um, it becomes a, a, a sign of a culture who has set themselves up as their own God. Uh, you know, Jude 7 says this about Sodom. It says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. What Judah's getting at is this, and this serves as an example of why God had to come in with his wrath. This is not a sin that God takes lightly. It, it, it tends to show us the fruit of a, a lot of other sins of, of giving themselves over to themselves and selfishness. And, uh, you know, a really sad aspect of this um, here that you see is that they're training their young sons up in this as well. All the young boys are there. Right? And, and, the, and the young daughters in this city are learning that this is what masculinity is. That men get to do whatever they want to whomever they want. And uh, these young boys are actually groomed up into this lifestyle. And they're going to become like their fathers. 
Which, as a, a quick aside, I think this tells us something about our sexuality. Uh, our sexual desires aren't just something that we're born with, but proper sexuality is something that's cultivated. Our, our desires can actually be shaped. And, and you know, your primary identity is actually not your sexual identity and how you feel about it at any given um, moment. Uh, which is, for us, it's no wonder why there's growing numbers of, of kids in our own culture coming out with all sorts of new sexual identities, new sexual perversions. Uh, this desire is actually something that's been cultivated within our own culture that sets itself up as God. And, uh, and when we make ourselves God, we eventually end up being dehumanized. Because you, you can't find your true self within yourself. You can only find your true self, your true identity within the God who created you. And there are a few things that are more dehumanizing than denying God's design for sexuality. And um, this story, though, gets worse than just that, as you see how Lot responds to this situation, this request. What does he do? Well, he, he defends these two men. He's like, no, don't take them. They're under my protection. Then he offers his daughters to these men to do with whatever they pleased. These are daughters that are engaged. Their future husbands are actually in the house with them. They say nothing as Lot offers his daughters. And this is one of those stories that if this doesn't get your blood boiling and gets you a little angry, I, I don't know what will. Uh, this is vile. This is wicked. Uh, what's, what's being offered here? Uh, and at this point, you know, maybe the question is, what would you have God do in a situation like this when people are acting like this? What does it mean for God to be loving in cities that have given over to perver perversions like this? Because at the end of the day, I don't think you actually want a God who idly sits by when, when there's wickedness in this world. You don't, you don't want a God who's going to sit on his hands when there's wickedness happening all over the world. What we want, I think deep down, and what we need is a God to come and destroy the works of the wicked, the works of Satan. I mean, that's what we're praying for, actually, in, in Advent. And all the, the songs that we sing in Advent is a prayer, Lord, come, destroy the powers of darkness. This is what we need. So that the powers of darkness does not spread. And this is actually what God's love looks like. God's love looks like his wrath being poured out. For the sake of the world, Sodom is like this virus. And if it's not stamped out, it could spread to other cities. And so we find God is the God who acts. He's not a co coward. He does not ignore the cries of the poor. But he comes with his wrath out of love for the world. Wiping out this city to free this part of the world from the plague of wickedness. It's not only necessary, but this is actually good. Um, it, it, you know, you see this in verse 23 to 24 when it actually happens. The, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. So you get this image of these, the warships of God come and rain down fire and destroy this city. Again, this is our prayer of Advent, right? See our suffering. Come again. Make it new. Don't linger. Don't linger in your return, but, but come. God's wrath is good because it actually rescues the world. It rescues the poor from the wicked. It rescues the suffering. It, it stamps out evil so it can't spread. This is how God listens to the cries of the poor as he rescues them. You know, one uh, Croatian theologian, Miroslav Volf, who I don't know if I'd always recommend his writing. He's got some, if you're like a big reader, he's got some crazy stuff. But he's got some really good stuff uh, to say about the violence and wrath of God. He's, he's, he's a man who, he's an older man who grew up in Croatia when there's lots of ethnic cleansing happening there. And this is what he says about God's wrath 
and his violence. Uh, he says this, for the sake of the peace of God's good creation, we can, we can and must affirm divine anger and divine violence while at the same time holding on to the hope that in the end, even the flag bearer will desert the army that desires to make war against the land. But should not a loving God be patient and keep luring the perpetrator into goodness? God suffers the evil of evildoers evil throughout the history as God has suffered them on the cross. But how patient should he be? The day of reckoning must come because to be loving God means to stop wickedness. It's a profound statement that kind of gets at both sides of this tension that God needs to come and he needs to end the reign of wickedness. But also, like, he's the God who lures people out of wickedness into his family. And God is saying, listen, I, I'm patient to a point because I desire that all men might be saved. But only up until a point, and then after that, I need to act. But even here, he actually gives these people a chance to repent. He gives them a sign. Look at verse 11. He says he strikes them with blindness. He blinds them, in, he blinds the city. And blindness throughout scripture is, is a judgment. Just one, one to remind you, remember Paul on the road to Damascus, he's, he's blinded by God. And then he repents and becomes, you know, the great apostle Paul. And, uh, um, but it's this, it's this judgment that leads to repentance and restoration. This, is, this blinding that happens here in Sodom is like an early, early warning system. Saying, hey, you guys are wicked, I'm going to blind you. Um, uh, in the end, it's, it's actually meant to cause them to repent. And we know from, you know, stories of Jonah and Nineveh, like, the Lord listens to those who repent, and he relents, and he invites them into his family. Um, but they don't listen. So because they, they don't listen, and because God does not and cannot lie about what he's going to do, he must follow through with this judgment. And part of his rescuing of the world is just pouring out the, the wrath on evil. It's a small precursor to the end of time where one day all the works of Satan will be destroyed forever. And this is, you know, this is actually really good news for us because what it tells us is that whatever evil that you're experiencing and enduring in your own life, whatever the effects of fall that you're dealing with in your own life, whether it's your own actions and sin or actions of others being done to you or just the effects of living in a, in a decaying world where things don't work the way they should, those do not have the final word in your life. God will not allow those effects of sin to linger forever because his love will not let him. And his wrath is an extension of his love. But maybe it, it makes us to ask, what about, you know, that's great when I need to be rescued. I want God to come and rescue me and do what he has to do to rescue me. That's great. But what about when others actually need to be saved from me and my sin? Uh, what, ha what do we do when God's judgment, his wrath is, is pointing at us, right? It's easy to feel good about God's wrath for those other wicked people in the world, those out there. It's never the ones in here, right? But what happens when it sows in here? What about us and our wickedness? What, what, what about us when we give in to the lusts of our own flesh? What hope do we have then? This is where we find not only do we need God to come in his, in his wrath, but we need him to come and save us. Uh, that we need to actually be saved from God's wrath too. And, you know, after this incident at the door, right, the angels... Uh, they, they try to get to Lot and his, his family to leave, which you think would be pretty easy to get. I mean, if I was witnessing this and the angel's like, hey, let's go, I'd be like, all right, let's, let's get out of here. But for whatever reason, this family's like, Ugh, I don't know, you know, things are pretty good here. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I'm reading into this a little bit, but apparently this is pretty commonplace behavior because even his sons-in-law's reactions to this whole thing, they're like, man, I think he's joking. 
Uh, he's just jesting. Maybe they're like, are you kidding me? This happens all the time. Why would God judge us now all of a sudden? Give me a break. Which, you know, is, is a little bit of an aside. This is actually kind of interesting because I imagine some of you in this room have been thinking about God's wrath and thinking about how it seems slow and inconsistent at times. Like, why does God choose to come and pour wrath out here and not here? And why is he patient here and not patient here? It can seem a, a little random to us. So maybe that's even what the son's, son-in-laws are saying. They're like, hey, like, why now? Why here? This happens all the time. Are you kidding me? Um, why doesn't he just stop wickedness already? And I think one of the things this tells us is that God is patient and in, in his desire to call people to repentance, but there's always limits to it. He will act sooner or later. It's, it's just in his perfect time for his reasons that honestly he hasn't told us about. So we, we're not privy to the, the why and the timing of it, but we do know that he will not allow it to linger for forever. And verse you know, 14 again tells us the sons in law they don't believe him. Okay, the sons of law were likely from Sodom. They clearly liked it there. It's home to them. And then you see this in verse 15 to 16, which for me is surprising. He says this, As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. It's haunting words. He lingered. Lot didn't want to leave either. I mean, how often is this us when it comes to our own sin struggles, that we linger. I mean, why do we sin at the end of the day? I know people will sometimes come into my office and they'll talk to me about the struggles, like, man, why do I keep doing this thing that I don't want to do? At the end of the day, we do it because we want to. We, we, at the end of the day, we sin because we actually like it. It makes us feel good. At least in the moment, it feels good. We linger just like Lot did, often. You know, Peter Lightheart, speaking on this, uh, says that not only was Lot in Sodom, but, but this shows us that Sodom had worked its way into Lot as well. And again, he's a leader in this town. He's grown to love it. Remember why Lot even went into, this, into Sodom in the first place. And the why, reason why he left Abraham was to pursue wealth and status. And this is what he's found in this city. He's got status. He's probably got wealth. And at the end of the day, worldly pursuits will create a craving for the world that can't be quenched. And not only does Lot linger, but look at his verse, look at his wife here in verse 26. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. She looks back and gets turned into a pillar of salt. You know, as a kid, I was always confused by this. I'm like, listen, if that was me, I would have definitely looked back. You know, like watching fireworks on a and on, on July 4th or, you know, slowing down to look at a car wreck and causing traffic behind you, that's me. You know, I do all those things because it's, you know, it's exciting to look at. And usually people's quick answer to me was always like, well, they said not to look back. They looked back, pillar salt. What do you want me to do? He's like, obviously, okay. Um, but it's not like this is the first time someone has disobeyed, you know, direct orders and, and, and the rules of God. So why now? Why salt? What's going on here? Um, what is this about? Well, I think actually Jesus helps us interpret this a little bit. In, in Luke 17, Jesus says this. He says, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. And uh, I'm taking this a little out of context because this comes in this large section uh, where Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of God and what Jesus is getting at is this, and the, the old can't coexist with the new. And for Lot's wife, it wasn't just that she turned back, but her heart still pined for Sodom. She was still a Sodomite through and through. 
And she didn't look back just to see the fire rain down, but she looked back in great sorrow for what she had lost. And this, let's just remember what she lost. Let's remember this place that she's losing. It's a place where uh, homosexual acts, violence, rape, and greed were rampant. So much so that no one was innocent. This is the place that she loves and wants to still be in and live in. And so her turning back is a sign that this is the kingdom that she loves. And she's, she, so she too is consumed along with that kingdom because God is not going to let that kingdom reign. So she's turned into salt. And you know, just a quick word about the salt thing because I think there's some interesting things there. But there are covenants of salt that are made in Scripture. The covenant that God makes with David, Second Chronicles tells us, was a covenant of salt. And um, salt, you know, we're called to be the salt of the earth, you know, in, in the New Testament. Jesus tells us that. And so salt is a sign of, of blessing. It's a sign of, you know, like salt preserves, it, it enhances flavor. This is what Christians are meant to be in this world. We're meant to be a preserving agent in the world that enhances the flavor of every place that we exist. So it's a sign of this profound blessing. But, but in, like in any covenant, the, the signs of blessings are also can be the signs of curses when there's disobedience. And so this is kind of this mark of this curse um, on her for her covenant breaking and turning back and not listening. And so one of the things, even the, the quote unquote good characters of the story, the story that arrest, the people that are rescued Lot, uh, even those characters are evil. They love wickedness. So what hope do you and I have in this? Well, our hope in the end is that we have a God who rescues his people despite themselves. Uh, and this is what you see here at the end of verse 16. He says, so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. This is kind of a wild part of the story. I love this, that the angels dragged them out. That out of the mercy of God, he, he would not let them linger for forever. He would not let them stay, but he, he grabbed them and he drug them out of the city. Uh, this is a mercy. It's undeserving. In the midst of this destruction, God saw fit to save Lot, even if he didn't want to go. So the question is, why? Why, why save Lot? Clearly, Lot isn't any better than any of the other men in Sodom. Um, why save him? Uh, verse 29 tells us the answer. At the very end of this, I love this. So it was said that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when, the over, when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. At the end of the day, Lot was saved, not because of Lot, but because God remembered Abraham. God remembered his covenant with Abraham because he was part of his family, because Abraham was his advocate. God showed mercy not because he was better than anyone else, but because of his family connection. And at the end of the day, you and I uh, cannot be good enough to save ourselves from God's wrath either. You know, Romans 1 says this about us. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. One of the things this teaches us is that we're all deserving, actually, of this wrath of God because all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. This is why we actually need a Savior. This is why we need an Advent. We need someone that can come and rescue us, his people, lest we be swept away like Sodom. And, and this is exactly why Jesus comes. He's the better advocate. He, he's, the, he's our better covenant head. He comes to drag you out of your sin and turn your heart. And this is what makes the gospel the gospel, right? The word that means good news. The gospel says that, listen, Jesus is going to invade your life. And he's going to drag you out of your sin. 
and that he alone can change your heart and change your loves and make you love the things of God and hate the things of the world. He alone can change your desires. So how does, how does Jesus do this? How does Jesus actually rescue us like this? Well, he does this. He accomplishes this task um, by coming under the wrath of God himself. Right? He, he doesn't just get God to ignore evil. Uh, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't just get God to ignore his, his anger against sin, but he does this through his first advent in the fullness of time when he was born of a virgin, living the one righteous life. And how does he spend his righteousness but by dying in the place of the unrighteous? Taking the wrath of God on himself while we are set free. And we see this profoundly in Isaiah 53, speaking of Jesus. I'm gonna read the whole thing. It's a little bit on the long side, but just listen to these words in light of Sodom, in light of Advent. He says this, uh, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressors, for transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off. At the land of the living stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his, la- in his, in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Listen to this. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is a profound statement of what Jesus has done for us. That Jesus, in a way, he becomes Sodom. He becomes sin. He who knew no sin becomes sin. He becomes cursed on the tree that he could take the wrath of God on himself that you and I might be set free. That he could satisfy God's wrath, God's anger against sin. This is the good news of the gospel that he endured this to pull you from sin, to save you from wrath. And the gospel says, listen, you need a savior. You can't save yourself. And the the, the reality is deep down, I think all of us know this. We all know that we love our sin a little too much, that we can't change ourselves no matter how much we try. At the end of the day, we need someone to drag us out, to give us a new heart, the heart of flesh. And this is precisely what Jesus has come to do. Because the reality is none of us in this room are any better than any of the people in Sodom. And one of the things that this is meant to show us is that that is true, that we are in deep, profound need. And in Christ, we find the one that we need, and if you're here, and maybe you're struggling deeply, profoundly with sin, the answer is to look to, to Jesus who has come, to, to repent and, and heed his warning to, and ask him to transform you, and he will. 
and he will help you walk in righteousness. This is exactly why he came to make his blessings known as far as the curses found. And you know, sometimes we struggle to trust Christ in repentance because of the guilt that we feel about our own sin. It's a kind of you know, backwards way that we think about sin. Like when we struggle with sin, our struggle with sin keeps us from repenting and turning from our sin. It's this vicious cycle that we get stuck in, feeling shame that comes with it. But friends, this is where I would beg you to look to Christ who took the shame of your most shameful acts, your most heinous acts, heinous desires on himself. So much so that there is now nothing to fear when you approach the Father. And as you approach him, he makes you new. He takes your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. He calls you a new creation. He calls you beloved. He calls you holy. He calls you righteous. How can he do that? Because Jesus is righteous. And he gives his righteousness to you. And as you walk in him, you and I are now, as we get transformed, as we grow into these deep truths day by day, we're sent out into the world to actually be salt and light, to make his blessings known, to be the people who pray, pray for the flag bearers of the enemy until the entire earth lies in submission to our great and mighty king. May the Lord haste this day. May he use us to build his kingdom while we wait with great hope and expectation for his return. Pray with me. God, we give you thanks for your mercy, for your grace that while we were still in sin, while we were still your enemies, that you came and you died and you rescued us, not for any good found in us, but for the good that's found in you. God, I pray that you would help us to walk in this truth, to walk in righteousness, that you send us out into this world to be agents of justice, agents of mercy, agents of your kingdom, calling all that would listen to come and to follow you to find life. Lord, haste your return. Help your church to live as your church until that great day. In Christ's name we pray, amen.